Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, do you trust science? Do you trust experts? Do you trust academia? Do you trust everything that's labeled as science? And is all science good science? Why are there controversies about scientific issues like the origin of new life forms? We talked about that last week with Stephen Meyer, where we talked about, is there a tree of life? And why are there controversies about other scientific issues, maybe a little bit closer to home to us right now, such as vaccines and COVID? How do you know what or who to believe anymore? Not long ago, I was on a trip and I was sitting next to a, to a lady and we got talking about the COVID situation. Of course, we're all masked up because we're on the plane. And uh, she said, we ought to just follow the science. And I asked her, which science? What science are you talking about? Because the truth is, science doesn't say anything scientists do. And scientists, like the rest of us, are susceptible to error, they're susceptible to biases, they're susceptible to social pressure, groupthink, and the motivators of sex, money, and power, just like all of us are. Unfortunately, a lot of times we tend to think if they're scientists, they must always be telling us the truth. Are they? Last week, I talked a little bit about Dr. Peter Bogosian. Dr. Bogosian is an atheist who wrote the book, A Manual for Creating Atheists. And he was, until last week, the assistant professor of philosophy at Portland State University. He resigned because he said, basically, the university is just churning out social justice warriors, and it's not involved in the free exchange of ideas. In fact, it's suppressing the free exchange of ideas. And beginning in 2017... Dr. Bogosian and his colleagues, which happened to be James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose, put out a number of bogus academic papers to prove a point. And they describe themselves personally as left-wing academics. They're atheists, they're leftists, they're not conservatives, but they wanted to prove a point. They wanted to expose grievance study experts as morally corrupt. Now, according to them, who are the grievance study experts? They were people that taught in women's and gender studies, feminist studies, race studies, sexuality studies, fat studies, queer studies, cultural studies, and sociology. They called those grievance studies. And so what they did is they put out these bogus papers and the gatekeepers of the so-called academic journals in those fields publish these bogus papers. And it turns out, it appears that they'll publish virtually anything as long as it conforms to the moral ideology, the leftist groupthink that pervades those grievance study, studies, that pervades academia. And here's what, the, uh, what Bogosian and particularly Lindsay stated that they were trying to do. 
They intended to demonstrate, quote, that gender studies is crippled academically by an overriding, almost religious belief that maleness is the root of all evil. And they also wanted to highlight problems with the review process of open access journals. And so they submitted these papers to open access journals in those fields. And in Bogosian's uh, resignation letter, which you can find online, in fact, we'll put it in the description here of this uh, podcast. And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. If you want to get the links to this show, go to the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast if you're listening on radio right now, and you'll see the links. And here is a portion of Peter Bergosian's resignation letter. I read a small portion of it last week, but here's another relevant portion about putting this bo these bogus papers in these academic journals. Uh, here's what he said. He said, there was an urgent need to demonstrate that morally fashionable papers, no matter how absurd, could be published. I believe then that if I exposed the theoretical flaws of this body of literature, I could help the university community avoid building edifices on such shaky ground. So in 2017, I co-published an intentionally garbled peer review paper that took aim at the new orthodoxy. Its title, here's the title, I'm sorry, I know this is family radio, but this is the title of the article, the bogus article he published. Here's the title. The conceptual penis as a social construct, unquote. He said this example of pseudo scholarship, which was published in cogent social sciences, argued that penises were products of the human mind and responsible for climate change. Immediately thereafter, I revealed the article as a hoax designed to shed light on the flaws of the peer review and academic publishing systems. Shortly thereafter, SWAT stickers in the bathroom with my name under them began appearing in two bathrooms near the philosophy department. He was a philosophy professor at Portland State University. He said, they also occasionally showed up on my office door, in one instance accompanied by a bag of feces. Our university remained silent when it acted. It was against me, not the perpetrators. I continued to believe, perhaps naively, that if I exposed the, exposed the flawed thinking on which Portland State's new values were based, I could shake the university from its madness. In 2018, I co-published published a series of absurd or morally repugnant peer-reviewed articles in journals that focus on issues of race and gender. In one of them, we argued that there was an epidemic of dog rape at dog parks and proposed that we leash men the way we leash dogs. Our purpose was to show that certain kinds of scholarship, he puts that in quotes, scholarship, are based not on finding truth, but on advancing social grievances. This worldview is not scientific and it is not rigorous. Administrators and faculty were also angered by the papers, or he said they were so angered by the papers that they published an anonymous piece in the student paper and Portland State filed formal charges against me. Their accusation, quote, research misconduct based on the absurd premise that the journal editors who accepted our intentionally deranged articles were, quote, human subjects, unquote. Quote, I was found guilty 
of not receiving approval to experiment on human subjects. Okay, you can see how absurd some people in academia are, that they would publish such, such nonsense. Why? Because it adheres with their moral ideology. And here's what Boghossian said in another context. He said, the regressive left, and he considers himself a member of the left, just not the regressive left. He's, he's liberal politically. But he says, the regressive left have taken over academia. And he stated that cultural relativism and egalitarianism are contradictory values, unquote. Yes, of course they are. To say there are no moral absolutes, but everybody has to be treated equally is a contradiction. Because if there are no moral absolutes, then the claim that we ought to treat everyone equally or everyone ought to gain equity, everyone ought to have the same stuff, that moral precept right there is not relative. It's absolute. It's, it's objective according to them. So you can't have it both ways. Now, what does this say about our ability to trust scientists and experts and academia? I'm going to mention how this all relates right after the break. Before we get there, I want to point out that this September 22nd, that this, this Wednesday, we're starting up our college events again, Lord willing. We're going to be at Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction, Colorado. It's open to anybody. Anybody can attend. I think it's 7 to 9 Mountain Time. All the details are on our website. Then September 25th, 26th, there'll be a Temple Church in New Bern, North Carolina on the Church Defenders of the Faith Conference, speaking there. Then September 29th, North Carolina Wesleyan College. And then October 4th, Marshall University, all for I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Check our website, crossexamined.org. Click on events. You'll see my calendar there. We're back in two minutes. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist on the American Family Radio Network with me, Frank Turek. Our website's crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it, .org. We have a YouTube channel, two words, crossexamined, over a thousand short videos on there. Most of them from Q&A on the college campus. So check all that out there. And don't forget to download our app, two words in the app store, crossexamined. Today we're dealing with the question... How can you trust or should you trust the experts? Should you trust academia? Should you trust what is put forth as science? Well, it depends. You need to verify before you trust. Now, before we get back into this, I also want to mention regarding, we're talking morality, ethics here, the best course on abortion and the pro-life position is about to start at onlinechristiancourses.com. Just go to crossexamine.org. You'll, you'll see online courses there. The Ethics of Abortion by Scott Klusendorf. He is going to be your instructor. You're going to want to be a part of this. This class, I think the first section's already full. It starts October 4th, or it's getting close to being full anyway. You want to get in before we fill up because this course is probably the most comprehensive course that we're offering on any topic, and Scott is the best, I think, in the country on this pro-life issue. Also, right after that, I think it starts on October 18th, Engaging LGBTQ Conversations with Clarity and Compassion by Sean McDowell. That's going to start on October 18th. Check all that out. Go to crossexamine.org. Click on online courses. Now, question, why do we think scientists and experts and other folks in academia are in neutral when they really are in when they really are corruptible like the rest of us. 
Why do we think they're not susceptible to the same biases, the same temptations, the same social pressures, the same groupthink, the same errors as, as we all are? I mean, we don't certainly think politicians are neutral, do we? No. Well, why do we think scientists are? We don't think all religious people are neutral, do we? No, we don't. We don't think all atheists are neutral, do we? No, we don't. All doctors are neutral? No, we don't. We're all susceptible. Every, I'm susceptible. You're susceptible. That's why we have to check what people say against the data. So when people are just saying science says this or science says that, first of all, science doesn't say a word. Scientists say things. There would be no science if there weren't for human beings, quite obviously. Science is done by scientists, by people, and all data needs to be gathered, all data needs to be interpreted, and scientists do that. So when you get a conclusion from a scientist or from an expert or from academia or from government or somewhere, and they say science says this, you need to stop and say, first of all, who says that? And what evidence do you have for that conclusion? What evidence is there behind this policy position? You say, wait a minute, Frank, what about consensus? Doesn't science run on consensus? No, it doesn't actually. In fact, you hear people saying, we got a consensus. We got a consensus on this. We got a, we got a consensus on climate change. We have a consensus on Darwinism. We have a consensus on, on COVID. We have a consensus on this, a consensus on that. Question, ladies and gentlemen, does anyone, have you ever heard anyone say we have a consensus about the chemical composition of water? or the chemical composition of the benzene molecule? No, you never hear people saying that. We only get people claiming there's a consensus when there is actually a controversy and hence no consensus. Be careful when people say there's a consensus. In fact, I want you to go back. If you guys have the cross-examined app, if you don't, you need to get it. I want you to go back, uh, download the cross-examined app and go to a program that I had Jay Richards on. Jay Richards had written an article on the stream four years ago, stream.org. The article is called Politics Disguised as Science. I don't have time to go through everything in the article. We did it four years ago. It's an evergreen podcast. It's May 6, 2017. So go back in the archives to May 6, 2017. It's probably not on iTunes. You probably got to go to our app to, to access this and listen to what Jay had to say on that May 6, 2017 show about this. One of the things he points out is that consensus, uh, according to Webster anyway, means a general agreement and group solidarity in, in sentiment and belief. And he says, this sums up the problem. Is this consensus based on solid evidence and sound logic, or is it based on social press pressure and groupthink? And during that podcast, uh, he pointed out that in certain fields, like the grievance studies we just talked about with uh, Peter Bogosian, in certain fields, in grievance studies and even biology, you can't get anything published or funded unless you agree with the consensus of the field, the people who are the gatekeepers of these journals, the people who are going to give you tenure if you're at a particular university. You have to agree with them or you're toast. And the groupthink of the field is sometimes wrong. You are never going to get funded or published if your conclusions oppose the consensus. If your data somehow in the grievance fields 
fields opposes, say, LGBTQ political goals, or you suggest that there's an intelligent designer in, in behind life if you're in the bi biological field, you're not going to get funded from a government grant. You're not going to get published. And of course, that's the canard some of the uh, Darwinists always say, well, your stuff isn't published. Well, the reason it's not published in a peer-reviewed journal is because the gatekeepers won't allow it to be published. Because they're the ones saying, no, it's got to be, you got to have a natural cause if you're going to call this science. If you're going to say there's an intelligent being out there, that's not science. So this is a scientific journal and you're not doing science. So it's a catch-22 situation. Now, the consensus in science has changed repeatedly over the history of science. In fact, in just in the past 200 years, there have been radical changes in the consensus in many areas. For example, in uh, cosmology, the relationship between the Earth and the sun changed. You know, we used to think, because it looks like the sun is going around the Earth, we used to think that was true. Now we know it's the opposite, that the Earth's actually going around the sun. There's been a big change in biology. It went from a creation viewpoint to an evolutionary viewpoint with Darwin. And now it seems to be at least creeping back in the other direction. Now Darwinian evolution is being doubted for, and by a significant minority of scientists, and for some of them it's giving way to ID. And if you don't think so, you can go back to the 2016 event that took place out in, uh, in England, in London, at the Royal Academy of Science, I think the, the name of the affiliation was called, where a bunch of Darwinists got together and said, look, man, this, this Darwinian uh, theory that we have out, this naturalistic theory just doesn't work anymore. Mutations will never give us new life forms. We got to come up with another naturalistic theory. Now they met, they didn't come up with a new naturalistic theory, but they're admitting the problem with the consensus. Also in medicine, how is disease transmitted? They used to think it was bad air. That's how they thought the, uh, that's how they thought the plague was transmitted. Now, it, it, the consensus or the paradigm moved from bad air to germ theory. In physics, we went from Newtonian gravity to general relativity. In cosmology, again, we went from the steady state theory, which thought the universe was static and eternal, to the Big Bang, where there's a beginning to space, matter, and time. In geology, we shifted from continental drift to plate tectonics. And the guy who was proposing plate tectonics, and this was just accepted back in the 60s, they thought he was nuts. But he was right. So the consensus isn't always right. Sometimes the paradigm shifts. In fact, Jay Richards, in that article I mentioned on the stream, said this. He said, the quickest way for scientists to put their careers at risk is to raise even modest questions about climate doom. And he gives several examples in the article. He says, scientists are under pressure to toe the party line on climate change and receive many benefits for doing so. And he says, that's another reason for suspicion. When someone says there's a consensus and science says, well, wait a minute. How do you know that's true? What's the evidence for it? You want to get funding for your research project? You somehow have to link it to climate change. In fact, that's what Bogosian did in that crazy bogus article or research project he posted. He, he linked the penis article, I hate to even use the word again on radio, but that's what the thing was about, to climate change. And people were like, oh yeah, this must be true. This must be right. And you say, wait a minute, Frank. 
Let's come back to some real hard science here. Let's let's talk about COVID for a minute. What about that? Shouldn't we just follow what the CDC says, the Center for Disease Control? Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't noticed, they seem to be changing every other day. And tragically, the CDC has been politicized, and they've been politicized for many years, actually. The former professor who now leads the CDC a month or two ago was making proclamations about eviction moratoriums. Now, what is the head of the CDC doing making housing policy for the United States? Well, she shouldn't be, but she was. And of course, Biden tried to extend the, evic uh, the eviction moratorium so people couldn't get kicked out of their apartments if they or their ho homes if they weren't paying rent. He tried to extend that unilaterally, and the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. Well, the, the CDC was trying to say that in order to avoid the fact that this was a political issue that the courts had jurisdiction over. They wanted to say, oh, well, since the health crisis, we have jurisdiction over it. It's politicized. In fact, the CDC, <clears throat> you know how we've talked about on this show before, excuse me, <clears throat> the fact that sex, money, and power are normally the three motivators that can cause any of us, I'm not just throwing rocks in a glass house here, it could cause me, you, any of us, to, uh, to not either speak the truth, do the truth, uh, or support the truth. Sex, money, and power are powerful motivators to pull us off track, in other words. And CDC is no longer reporting the facts and stats about health related to sex. They're now involved in advocacy of behaviors that are verifiably unhealthy. In fact, if you go to the CDC website and look up same-sex behavior or these kind of homosexuality or transgenderism, it looks like a glossy brochure advocating such behaviors. They, they backhandedly admit the negative health effects of those behaviors, yet they advocate for the behavior at the same time. And they assume without evidence that much of the negative health outcomes, tragically, that homosexuals experience are caused by societal disapproval, what they call homophobia, rather than the act itself. Now, look, the CDC will tell people to stop smoking all day because it hurts their health. In fact, they have an entire page or series of pages devoted. You, you could go there, cdc.gov forward slash tobacco forward slash quit smoking. And they'll tell people to stop smoking, but they won't tell people to stop engaging in unhealthy sexual behaviors. Why? Because they're politicized. Because it's politically correct to tell people to stop smoking. It's not politically correct to tell people to refrain from certain sexual behaviors that may be harmful. Now, when you're politicized, your credibility is damaged. And I have a bunch of questions right after the break about this. And then we're going to get into a little bit of the COVID situation to apply these findings to that. So don't go away. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. We're back in two minutes. Don't go anywhere. Ladies and gentlemen, Frank Turek, I'm no doctor. Well, I am a doctor, but not the kind of doctor that can actually help you medically, all right? But I've been doing a lot of reading on this, and I'll just give you my perspective on it. I just have some questions that I want to ask. In fact, one question uh, was asked by the governor of Florida not long ago, and that is, why do we have 300% more cases of COVID this year when we have a vaccine than at the same time last year when we didn't have a vaccine. Why is that? And if we have a vaccine, this is my question, 
aren't vaccinated people protected from COVID? And if so, why are unvaccinated people being called a threat to vaccinated people? I mean, think about this. It's as almost if these people are saying we need to protect the protected from the unprotected by making the unprotected take the protection that didn't protect the protected. Okay, that's a mind bender here. Let me say that again. We need to protect the unprotected. Oh, sorry, I'm, even, I'm getting it wrong myself. Sorry, sorry. Start up. let me start over. We need to protect the protected from the unprotected by making the unprotected take the protection that didn't protect the protected. What? I mean, this just seems a lot. I don't have to be a doctor to know that there's something weird going on here, right? Why, why are they telling... Why are they saying that the vaccinated people need to be protected from the unvaccinated people by taking a vaccination that already isn't protecting the vaccinated people, according to them? I mean, it seems illogical to me. And if the policies are based on science and those policies are to protect public health, why are not immigrants required to get the vaccine? They're pouring over the border right now. Do you know the president's press secretary wouldn't answer the question the other day? She just wouldn't answer it. She moved on to somebody else. Why are the immigrants not being, they're bringing COVID over the border and they don't have to have the vaccine, but Americans do? This has got to be political. Why, why, why would you say this? Now, look, ladies and gentlemen, I'm all for a vaccine. I'm, I'm not anti-vaccine. If we have a good vaccine, fine, take it. I'm just asking questions about the policy that seems to be contradictory. And I don't have to know the motivation behind an illogical policy to know the policy is illogical. It's riddled with contradiction. Either our policymakers are colossally stupid or we're being lied to somewhere. And my friend Abraham Hamilton III, who also is at the American Family Network, American Family Radio Network, wrote a column not long ago called There Is No American Monarchy. He's an attorney, so he's pointing out that uh, the president doesn't have the authority to tell Americans to get a vaccine. But he also pointed out that, that just on September 1st of, of this year, 2021, the CDC quietly changed the definition for vaccination. It now defines vaccination as, quote, the act of introducing a vaccine into the body to produce protection from a specific disease, unquote. Congressman Thomas Mazie of Kentucky pointed out that the CDC previously defined vaccination as injection of a killed or weakened infectious organism in order to prevent the disease. That was up until 2015. But from 2015 to September 1st of this year, the CDC defined vaccination as, quote, the act of producing a vaccine into the body to produce immunity to a specific disease. Now, Mr. Hamilton goes on to say the CDC's vaccination definition evolved from prevention to immunity and now to mere protection. You see this, ladies and gentlemen, they're shifting the goalposts on us. If you're going to use the word vaccine, in most Americans' minds, vaccine would mean, okay, I'm immune to it generally. On a rare occasion, somebody who has the vaccination could get it, but generally you're immune to it. Now they've shifted to mean 
No, you're not immune to it, but you are protected, meaning you can still get it, but the symptoms may be tamped down. Maybe that's why we have 300% more COVID cases this year, because people mistakenly think that they're immune to the disease when they're really not. They can still get it. They can still transmit it, even though they have the vaccine. Why wouldn't you be upfront with this, with this information? Also, Abraham goes on to say, Abraham Hamilton in his article goes on to say this. He says the national injection mandate also seems to be anti-science. Now, let me quibble with this a little bit. Anti-science if you're, if you're interpreting the data rightly, right? Because, again, science doesn't say anything. Scientists say things. Anyway, he goes on to say this. Studies like this one from Israel specifically compared the potency and durability of natural immunity to purported injection immunity. The authors wrote that in their study demonstrated, quote, that natural immunity confers longer lasting and stronger protection against infection, symptomatic disease and hospitalization caused by the Delta variant than it does by the two dose Pfizer uh, uh, injection. Now, that's what the data from Israel, which is one of the more most um, vaccinated nations in the world says, yet when Tony Fauci, Dr. Fauci was asked the question about natural immunity. He was asked a question on CNN. He said, the, the, the question was asked for people with natural immunity, did they need to get the vaccine? They've already had COVID according to the studies. They have a better immunity to COVID than if they, if they get the vaccine. Do they have to get the vaccine too? Here is what Fauci said, quote, I don't have a, quote, really firm answer on that. Seriously? Really? This is from the director of the National uh, Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. If this is so, is science really driving Fauci or is something else dictating this decision? If the science, if the data shows, properly interpreted, that someone who's already had COVID is got a better immunity than someone who gets the shot, why would, you, why would you give them the shot? In fact, the same study showed that if you get the shot and you've already had COVID, if you get COVID again, your symptoms are going to be worse, according to this study. And yet, there's a mandate for all people to get the, certainly all people in the government, there's a mandate for this. When people who've already had COVID are already immune, better, better protected than are people that get the shot. So there's, there seems to be something, a power issue going on here. How about a money issue? Now, I just had an article sent to me by a doctor who has treated about 200 COVID patients. This guy's a personal friend of mine. He said, none of the people I treated went to the hospital and all have recovered completely. Now, how did he do that? I'll tell you in a minute. But here's the article he sent me. It comes from 2018. From uh, It's a CNBC article. And the title of it is, Goldman Asks, Is Curing Patients a Sustainable Business Model? And basically, here's what the article says, that Goldman Sachs analysts attempted to address a touchy subject for biotech companies, especially those involved in pioneering gene therapy treatment, cures that would be bad for business in the long run. He says, is curing patients, in this article, is curing patients a sustainable business model, uh, model? analysts ask in an April 10, 2018 report entitled The Genome Revolution? The potential to deliver one-shot cures is one of the most attractive aspects of gene therapy, it goes on to say. But then it says, 
while this proposition uh, carries tremendous value for patients and society, it would represent a challenge for genome medicine developers looking for sustained cash flow. The guy, the, the, the guy quoted in this article, Richter says, he says, Richter cited Gilead Sciences treatments for hepatitis C, which achieved cure rates of more than 90%. The company's U.S. sales for these hepatitis C treatments peaked at $12.5 billion in 2015, but have been falling ever since. And Goldman estimates that the, that the U.S. sales for uh, treatments in 2018 will be less than $4 billion. $4 billion. So it's dropped two-thirds because they cured it. They just didn't go ahead and treat it and kept the treatments up. He goes on to say, Gilead is a case in point where the success of hepatitis C franchise has gradually exhausted the available pool of treatable patients, the analyst wrote. In the case of infectious diseases such as hepatitis C, you could throw COVID in there, curing existing patients also dis decreases the number of carriers able to transmit the virus to new patients. Thus, the incident pool also declines. Where an incident pool remains stable, like cancer, the potential for a cure poses less risk to the sustainability of a franchise. Okay, that's the article. There's a few other paragraphs in it, but that's as far as I'm going to go. Here's my point. Big Pharma has a profit motive that may interfere with good medicine. Now, it's a double-edged sword. Why? Because a profit motive is good to encourage research and develop new treatments. But there may also be an incentive to not completely cure a disease in order to keep cash coming in for life extending treatments, for life extending treatments. In other words, let's just give people vaccines they need to get every few months because that'll keep the cash flow going. Let's not try and cure this thing. Let's just try and tamp down the symptoms. Now, do I know this is what Big Pharma is doing? No, I don't know. I'm just saying it's a possibility, it's a motive. It is a moral hazard, if you will. It's a nefarious motive. Now, let me go back to my friend, a medical doctor who has cured over 200 patients. None of them have gone to the hospital. They're all completely healed. How did he do it? A series of medicines, including oh, ivermectin. Oh, you're not going to say, you're not supposed to say ivermectin. This, this podcast is probably going to go to nowhere now because we're going to get squashed by the, uh, by the medical censor police. Ivermectin. He's cured that many people through that medicine with a couple of other, I think a steroid and a, a Z-pack of some kind. Anyway, ivermectin is at the center of this. And according to a recent article, which again, I'll post in the description, out of India, they apparently have had some incredible success with ivermectin, particularly, and as you may know, Joe Rogan, the, uh, the podcaster, took ivermectin and was back on his feet in a couple of days. I have a friend here, same thing. He, he had struggled with it for weeks and couldn't get ivermectin. He finally got ivermectin done. He was, he's, he's, he was fine. Now, why is this? Why are people saying don't use ivermectin? Well, the FDA has said don't use it, and I'll unveil why they said it right after the break, but uh, studies out of India have showed a dramatic, a dramatic reduction in COVID deaths. Do you know how many COVID deaths were in Uttar Pradesh uh, state in India? They have 240 million people there. Uh, as of August 5th, the week of August 5th, they had three deaths. You know how many we had in the United States? Well, we have 331 million people and 
50% of the people are vaccinated. We had 574 deaths. There, in India, they have 4.9% fully vaccinated. They had three deaths. Uh, here in the United States, we have over 50% vaccinated and we had 574 deaths. They had 26 total daily cases. We had 127,000 daily cases. What's going on? Are these numbers true? We'll look at it right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek. Don't go anywhere. Ladies and gentlemen, do you trust the science? Do you trust scientists? Does science say anything? Well, no, not really. Scientists say things. And scientists, like the rest of us, are just as susceptible to groupthink, to biases, to ideology, to social pressure, to being canceled. And we're probably going to get canceled after, <laughs> after bringing this to light. And as I say, maybe this date is bad. I don't, I don't, it doesn't seem like it could be bad. I'm getting it, I think, from a liable source. I'll put the sources up on the website. And that's, look, that's one of the problems with all this. You just don't know who to trust anymore. And, and yet one of the, one of the problems is, is our own government seems to have discredited itself by changing their story every other day, by saying everybody needs to be vaccinated against, except immigrants, by saying everybody needs a vaccination, even the people who are already vaccinated, they need to be protected from the people who haven't been vaccinated. But wait, if they've already been vaccinated, why, why do they need to be protected from the people who haven't been vaccinated? Because the people who haven't been vaccinated, if they get vaccinated, are they still going to have to be protected from the other people who haven't been vaccinated? I mean, it's maddening, isn't it? Now... The numbers I gave before the break on what's going on in India, I'll put the link in the description. You can check out the sources for yourself. Are these numbers true? Well, if they're just close to being true, why aren't we using ivermectin more? Why, and why did the FB or the FBI, the FDA, Federal Drug Administration, why did they directly say don't use ivermectin? Well, I read their article on it. Here's the fine print. It says, for humans, ivermectin tablets are approved at very specific doses to treat some parasitic worms, and there are topical on-the-skin formulations for head lice and skin conditions like uh, Roseca. However, the FDA has received multiple reports of patients who have required medical attention, including hospitalization, after self-medicating with ivermectin intended, intended for livestock. All right, let me stop right there. Is that why the FDA is saying don't use ivermectin? Because people are self-medicating and using the ivermectin that is normally used for a horse on a human? Well, I agree with them on that, but that's not the point. The point isn't to take a horse dosage of this stuff. The point is to have a doctor give you the appropriate medication. That's the kind of ivermectin you ought to be using if, in fact, it is effective. And, it, and here's what the article also says from the FDA again. Currently, available data do not show ivermectin is effective against COVID-19. Clinical trials assessing ivermectin tablets for the prevention or treatment of COVID-19 in people are outgoing. Okay, or ongoing, it says. It says, currently available data do not show ivermectin. Well, a little Google search or DuckDuckGo search will tell you the opposite. I found a, 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 a one study that said, yeah, we're finding that this is effective. Now, is the study good? I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I'm just saying to say that there's no, no studies out there showing it, 
It, it's, it's false. There are studies out there showing it. In fact, one study said this, there are no severe adverse drug events recorded in the study. A five-day course of ivermectin was found to be safe and effective in treating adult patients with mild COVID-19. Larger trials will be needed to confirm these preliminary findings. And this was back from February 2021. So this is what, back eight, eight months or so ago? Also, I know doctors are telling me the same thing. It wasn't just my doctor friend down in Texas. I have another doctor uh, a friend of mine, same, same thing he's telling me. Yeah, it's working. Now, ladies and gentlemen, again, I'm not a doctor. So take what I'm saying with, uh, well, you can take, it's just as, it's just as valuable as the CDC apparently, because the CDC keeps changing their mind on things. No, investigate, do, do some research. And my question is this ivermectin has been around forever. Uh, so is uh, hydroco... Uh, uh, what's the name of the thing? I can't think of it. I can't think of the name of the, the, the stuff used to... Yeah, hydrochloroquine. Thanks, Jorge. Hydrochloroquine. This has been around for... I took hydrochloroquine 30 years ago when I was in the Navy to prevent getting malaria. It's been used forever. Had no side effects. And they're saying, don't use, high, uh, don't, don't, don't use that drug. Well, what if the stuff they're using now isn't working? Why wouldn't you try it? When so many people are saying it's working, when it seems to be working in India. You remember when we had Bill Federer on a few weeks ago, the historian? It is the, uh, it's the show called uh, A Short History of Tyranny. Go back and listen to that program if you would. Because Bill says there are two ways to take power away from the people. Fear and free stuff. Fear and free stuff. And he says, look, this has been going on ever since government was created. You want to get people, you want to take power away from people if they have it, make them afraid and then give them free stuff and they'll get dependent on it. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't noticed, there's power in saying you ought to be afraid because you can get people to do what you want. Be afraid, but come to us to get protected. We will protect you with this free vaccine. Again, I'm not against vaccines, okay? Uh, I know the vaccine has been effective to tamp down symptoms. That's what the data show. There's no question that about that. However, when they're saying we will protect you with this free vaccine, but they don't really tell you what this vaccine is, that it's not an immunization technically. It's just sort of a pre-therapeutic that will tamp down the 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 uh, disease if you get it. I mean, it's a good thing it does that, but it, it doesn't make you immune. You can still get it and pass it to other people. And of course, it's not really free either. We are paying for it through taxes or the government printing money, which of course is just going to send inflation up and create other problems. And big pharma is getting paid every time we need another vaccine or a booster shot. There is just not enough money in ivermectin or other treatments that may cure COVID. Now, do I know that there's some sort of, that these motivations are causing our government to do these? No, I don't know that. I'm just being, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just asking questions. That's all I'm doing. And I'm, I'm wondering why there's a blackout. In fact, one guy, this one article uh, that I wrote or that I read regarding uh, the, uh, the ivermectin situation in India it, in the article, the the guy who wrote it is running it under a, writing it under a pseudonym because he's afraid he's going to get canceled. 
Why are people canceling one another over possible medical solutions to the pandemic? Why is that? Are people going to get are, are people going to get hurt if they take ivermectin as prescribed by a doctor? Are they going to get hurt because of doing that? No, you should throw everything you can at COVID. Ivermectin, zinc, Z-Pak, steroids, whatever you can do to knock the thing down. Why are we limiting our toolbox to knock this thing down? Is it possible that we're doing that from a government perspective? To get control over people? To pay off big pharma? It's possible. That's all I'm saying. So, what's the moral of all this? I remember Ronald Reagan when he was actually negotiating with Mikhail Gorbachev when the Soviet Union was just about to fall and they were negotiating some arms deal. And Reagan said of Gorbachev and really the agreement they came to, he said, trust but verify. Trust but verify. Let me reverse that. Verify before you trust. Do some research and see if you can figure it out. When people say things about COVID or about the tree of life or about evolution or about any of these controversial scientific issues, ask, what do you mean by that? What evidence do you have for that conclusion? Or what evidence do you have for that policy? Saying we're just following the science is not an adequate answer. What science? What evidence? What assumptions? Because the devil is often in the details. And, the de and often the assumptions that people have are invalid assumptions. For example, the tree of life we talked about last week. Uh, remember when Stephen Meyer was saying that whenever you put the data into the program that people use to come up with a tree of life, no matter what data you put in, you're always going to get a tree of life because that's what the program is designed to do. Well, it's no wonder we always get a tree of life if we put it into a program designed to give you a tree of life. It's not going to say there's no tree of life. It's going to concoct the data in such a way to give you a tree of life, even though, as Stephen said, it creates other problems elsewhere that shows that, that this tree can't be right. The other assumption in that kind of, of, of analysis is that people who are saying that because we have a common genetic code, a common genome, that it must be evidence of a common ancestor are precluding the other possible interpretation of the data, and that is it's a common creator or a common designer. But if you've ruled out that cause before you look at the evidence, is it any wonder you're going to have to assume it's a common ancestor? No. If a common ancestor is preloaded into your program, it doesn't matter what the data says. You're always going to say it's a common ancestor, not a common designer. And the same thing can be true with different interpretations of the COVID data or different interpretations of climate change, or different interpretations of any controversial scientific issue. That's why you got to look at the evidence. You got to look at the science, the, the evidence in the science, and, and what the scientists say and what their assumptions are. And I don't know why we're shutting down debate on using ivermectin or using hydroxychloroquine or any of these other. Why? 
when so many people are saying it's helpful. I just have questions. So no, I don't always trust the experts. No, I don't always trust academia. No, I don't always trust what is given to me as science because sometimes it's not philosophy. It's not science. It's philosophy disguised as science. Sometimes there are other issues, assumptions, biases, political agendas, and groupthink going on, and you got to verify it for yourself. I hope this was helpful, ladies and gentlemen. Don't forget, Colorado Mesa University this Wednesday, uh, another university in North Carolina next Wednesday, and then Marshall University after that. Check the website, crossexamine.org, and Lord willing, I will see you here next week. God bless.